Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the Agthentic Group. In this bonus episode, I'm handing over the interviewing reins to Matthew Pryor, my business partner, but just for this episode. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> well, the reason I'm doing this is because there are few people who could better drill into the challenges and opportunities of valuing natural capital other than you, Matthew, and our next guest, Dr. Ken Henry. Well, look, I'm sure Ken easily qualifies to hold that mantle, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best to catch up. Many Australians will know who Ken Henry is. He's a very well-respected economist and former Treasury Secretary from 2001 to 2011, where he became known for his bold economic proposals. And in this episode, Ken is as bold as ever in his predictions for agriculture. I think the next year or so could see an absolute explosion in the development of financial instruments that reward farmers for soil carbon, for other forms of terrestrial carbon, also for enhancement of environmental condition. Matthew, before we listen to your chat with Ken, I think for our non-Aussie listeners, like myself, kind of, can you give us a bit of background? Because surely it's rare for an economist to become almost a household name. Yeah, well, if there is such a thing, you know, Ken Henry might actually be Australia's most famous economist. He's held a lot of pretty influential roles across government and the private sector, actually. So he was Secretary of the Treasury of Australia for a significant period during the 2000s. And he was also on the board of the Australian Federal Reserve Bank. So, you know, a lot of pretty deep policy there. And it's actually probably that role that many Australians might remember him for because he was instrumental in Australia's response uh, to the GFC, which actually included uh, direct stimulus payments to households. And there's nothing like a bit of free money to uh, leave an impression, I guess. Interestingly, also, he was the chair of the board of the National Australia Bank, which is one of Australia's four big banks and actually Australia's largest agricultural lender. And so has, through that association, also has had a pretty deep connection to ag for a long period of time. But probably more than anything, uh, Ken's known as a reformer. And he's held uh, key roles in the development of Australian, you know, fundamental reforms to Australian taxation policy, and also was instrumental in the formation of Australia's, uh, let's say, notorious emissions trading scheme. And this was way back in 2004, when, you know, for many, many people, there was yet to be any real recognition of the need for climate action. And the ETS was a very significant, albeit uh, failed, federal policy to try and develop you know, a trading scheme for emissions. And so, you know, despite the fact that that actually was, wasn't successfully put into policy, it does show that Ken has been thinking about this stuff for a very long time. Yeah, wow. Perhaps even longer than you, Matthew? Possibly, yeah, possibly. <laughs> um, but no, Ken's really been thinking about some of these higher level economic systems questions when it comes to valuing carbon and natural capital and what role that will play in agriculture for, for a while. Yeah, look, a little bit less in the public eye perhaps today, but but no less involved in kind of driving important you know, climate action response. And in particular, with a kind of economic and sustainability lens. More recently, as the, uh, a member of the board of a group called Accounting for Nature, Ken has actually helped to usher in the development of a set of standards specifically for valuing natural capital. And as you'll hear in this episode, you know, his driving passion for recognition of natural capital as part of an overall economic lens actually stems from his early childhood where he was keenly interested in the natural environment. So perhaps we'll let Ken pick up the story from here. My interest in conservation as a young person, I think, developed because of my father's occupation, really. He was a timber worker. 
Well, he was a he was a timber worker when he left school, and he left school very early. Uh, I think he only did the first year of high school, perhaps twice. <laughs> and he he left school, became a timber worker, and then after marrying, he and my mother tried their their luck on a a dairy farm, which which went broke in a drought. And my father then went back to timber working, and for the rest of his life, that's what he was doing. He was a logger, in mainly in in state forests in the mid north coast of New South Wales. Uh, I, as a young fellow, was very aware of the work that he was doing and the way that he felt about the work that he was doing, and in particular, became very aware of the the waste that was involved in the work that he was doing, the carnage that was inflicted on the state forests of New South Wales because of practices that were condoned by the state government at the time, absolutely inexplicable practices. I remember one afternoon, he came home from work relatively early and he was in a great state of excitement. And he said, boys, there were three of us. My mother had three sons in less than three years. Um, said, boys, jump in the back of the car. I want to show you something. Took us down to the local sawmill. And there on the back of a truck was an enormous log. We'd never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it since. It would have, the diameter of the log, even at the thinner end, would have been perhaps 1.8 metres. At the thicker end, it was well over two metres. And there was only one log on the truck. This was a huge logging truck. That was the log. And he had chopped it down that day. And so I got into a discussion with him. I was still in primary school. I got into a discussion with him about the history of this log. Of course, it started with the tree. Like, how big was the tree? How old was the tree? I remember him saying the tree was obviously several hundred years old. And he told me which state forest it had come out of. I asked him questions like, uh, how much would the log be worth? Um, he didn't put a monetary figure on it, but I do remember him saying, well, you'd certainly get the framing for three or four timber houses out of this one log. So clearly it was worth a bit. I asked him how much he would have been paid for cutting the log down. Of course, he was on the lowest award wage in the Australian industrial relations system. So he didn't get paid very much for uh, that day's work or whatever it was that was involved in cutting the log down. And I said, well, what, the, the timber mill gets the rest? And he said, no, 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 no. No, there are also royalties payable on this log. And I asked him what royalties were and he told me what royalties were. And I said, well, how much? So that's a return to the people of New South Wales for you having taken this log out of the state forest. And he said, yeah, that's, that's what it is, I guess. And I said, well, how much would the royalties be? And he told me it was a few dollars, right? And then, you know, and I was a bit troubled by that. And he said, well, he said, you know, perhaps you, you need to understand. He said, look, this is a grey gum. Most grey gums of this age or anything like this age have a huge hollow core in them. So when you top down a grey gum, you expect that it's not going to be worth anything to the mill because the mill won't take the grey gum. It's not worth their while unless there's at least one foot of solid timber around the core in the middle of the tree. So most grey gums, when I cut them down, there's not that much timber around the core. I said, well, what happens then? He said, well, I leave them. Just leave them on the forest floor. I said, well, 
what royalties are paid in that case? He said, well, nothing. It was pretty distressing, right, as a young kid to be told something like that, that he was my father legally, in fact, more than legally encouraged by the state to go through the state forest, chopping down huge grey gums with the expectation that there wouldn't be enough timber in them to make it worthwhile harvesting for the local sawmill. And in his career, of course, he chopped down thousands of trees of that sort and they were just left. And then think about all of the other damage that is inflicted on the native forest because of the work that has to be done by bulldozers and sniggers and so on to get to those logs and the kind of incidental damage that's done to waterways and the introduction of weeds and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's a bit of a mess. I guess, you know, I maybe that's the reason, maybe that's the principal reason. It would certainly be one reason why at an early age I developed an interest in public policy. I'm pretty sure it's got um, something to do with the fact that eventually I ended up Secretary of the Treasury, which is the most senior economic policy advising role in Australia. And I, in that job, took very seriously the obligations of policy advisors to ensure that governments were aware of the environmental consequences of decisions that they were taking. And it was actually while I was in that role, when I got the opportunity, my wife and I, and, and both of us were at that time in our spare time, rescuing and rehabilitating and releasing injured wildlife. And we'd been doing that for some years and we became aware of the Epping Forest National Park, which is a scientific national park in central Queensland, which at that time was home to the last remaining colony of northern hairy-nosed wombats and there was an opportunity for us to spend five weeks there as caretakers of that scientific national park. It was, by the way, this particular five weeks happened to occur at a pretty strange time in history because it was uh, in the middle of 2008 and after getting back to Canberra from Epping Forest National Park, a couple of months later, Lehman Brothers collapsed in the United States and the global financial crisis hit us. So it was a, it was a rather peculiar year, 2008, but I, I still consider the most rewarding thing I did in that year was caretaking. And, and I think because of my passion, I guess, for environmental issues, for conservation issues, in my study of economics, I was always trying to reconcile the two and not to look for a distinction between the two, but to try to to find common ground and to try to find a framing of economic issues and a framing of environmental issues that had some, some consistency. And, and in fact, you don't have to look that hard. The thing is that people choose not to look or have in the past chosen not to look. One of the really terrific things of the last couple of decades is that increasingly people are coming to the realisation that Far from there being a trade-off between the two things, there's a, there's a core dependency of development upon conservation. So to see very commercially motivated business people quite passionate about the state of the environment, it's, it's increasingly commonplace to encounter farmers who are deeply passionate about environmental condition of the land for which they see themselves now as 
custodians. On that point of kind of linking things together and sort of reading through the backstory of Accounting for Nature and where it came from and the kind of linkage to the Wentworth Group and even the kind of water policy initiatives, it, it sort of feels like looking backward now, you might take a different view of, of water policy and, it's, and that exact point, the kind of linkage to lots of other things. To me, at that time, it sort of felt like water was this special concern and even maybe even a, a special Australian concern, but you could kind of look back now and say, really, it's part of this overall kind of climate adaptive response. Very much so. Very much so. But if you, if you think of it in, uh, I guess, more abstract economic terms, the reason that the environment gets degraded typically is because there is no requirement that the true cost of the environmental degradation be factored into commercial decision making. I mean, that's that's basically it. Even in Economics 101, students get, and I used to teach Economics 101, I taught it for years at university you teach students about the externalities that arise because of market transactions and the most obvious set of externalities that arise through market transactions are environmental externalities and they tend to be negative externalities of course <laughs> there is such a thing as a positive externality but in the environment the externalities tend to be negative externalities and the fact that they, there is no requirement for the cost of those externalities, those external effects on people who are not parties to the transaction, means, of course, that one should expect negative externalities as a consequence of market activity. And, and the other thing that you teach, that one teaches Economics 101 students about that's highly relevant here is, is of course, public goods and the importance of public goods and why it is the role, very much the role of governments to ensure that public goods are provided and that public goods are not degraded because there's a thing called what economists call the free rider problem that explains why individuals acting as individual agents will never collaborate in a way that produces an adequate supply of public goods and to the contrary as individual agents they'll have an individual incentive to degrade public goods we call that, or in fact, centuries ago, that was referred to by economists as the tragedy of the commons. And we see that all, all around the place. And so using that sort of, or those frameworks to position challenges like what to do about the management of Australia's uh, relatively scarce water is, is helpful to economic policy makers. And I do agree with you that back when, when water was the issue, it, it was the issue. It, it really should have been cast in a broader context. And I think when those issues are being discussed today, they increasingly they are being put in that broader framework. Yeah. Do, do you see that? I mean, we, we see another way of kind of looking backwards at the Australian ABC system is to, to view it as 20 years of research into climate adaptive agriculture. And yeah. it, it was never done that way. It's, that, they were the policy settings, but it seems like we have this enormous font of knowledge that's now actually really globally relevant because it turns out it wasn't just an Australian water scarcity challenge. We were on the leading edge of, of a very significant change. I agree with that. Yeah, I think that is true. And you touched on there that kind of balance point between incentive and like carrot and stick as, as part of incentive design. Again, you know, we spend a lot of time kind of thinking about incentive design and, and how that motivates or not, you know, farmers to take on new innovation. How, how important 
will the the task force for disclosures around you know climate related and nature related things be in terms of creating the right incentives for genuine change there yeah so this is a really interesting uh really interesting topic i think so some of the farmers that i talk to they don't need to be incentivized to take an interest in the environmental condition of their properties. Some of them actually talked to me about the sense of frustration they have in being told by public servants sitting in Sydney or public servants sitting in Canberra that they must do this with their property, they must do that, they must, you know, blah, 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 fence off this, do that. Oh, and by the way, if you fence that off, we might even pay you some money. And they get really annoyed, not all of them, but some of them get really annoyed by it because they say, well, hang on a second, I, I, you know, I want to do this anyway, and I have been doing this anyway. And, you know, when we sit down, uh, when the family sits down uh, for dinner around the kitchen table, what do you think we talk about? You know, this is exactly what we talk about is the condition of the farm. And included in that discussion is the environmental condition of the farm, right? They don't need incentivizing. But then on the other hand, there are farmers who see and sensibly see a commercial opportunity in being able to demonstrate that they are good environmental custodians. You can think of this as a labelling and a product labelling issue, and it is, and I think it's entirely appropriate. We have seen over the years the rise of things like organic farming. You understand the motivation for that. A lot of farmers now wanting to go well beyond organic farming. They want to be able to put a label on their product which says every year we are improving the environmental condition of our property. For example, using the tools that Accounting for Nature provides to farmers, we can demonstrate that we are every year improving through the actions we take, improving the environmental condition of our property. And they see a marketing advantage in that. Others are looking forward to the development of markets in tradable instruments. These markets will, as you know, probably start with carbon credits. And for farmers, there'll be two opportunities. Um, first is in soil carbon or anyway, some, some form of terrestrial carbon. It could be soil, it could of course be vegetation. But then on top of that, there is, there is the possibility to, to stack on top of the carbon credit or mingle with the carbon credit an index of environmental condition or change in environmental condition over time. And the expectation is, and I think this is well-founded, that those carbon credits that have got environmental credits stacked on top of them will sell at a premium. So through that, farmers will have a commercial incentive not only to build up soil carbon and to revegetate, to trap carbon in vegetation, but also have an incentive to improve the environmental condition of their farms. It could be vegetation, obviously, but also fauna, native fauna, including birds. Flora, of course, could be water and water quality, to go back to the issue we were talking about a moment ago. And increasingly, farmers will have access to those commercial opportunities. I love that idea, the you know, submission of kind of additional sets of information that attest to to how well you do what you do in the end there has to be a thing a set of things that you can measure and a standard way to report about the change and and probably also a clearinghouse of sorts that is responsible for some sort of arbitration about whether they do or don't represent change in a positive direction because 
Correct. Yeah, change can go in both directions. And in fact, I thought immediately of the role of auditors as well, right? So yeah, it has to be audited. Totally. So let's unpack that a little bit. Firstly, you do need very, very credible, essentially unassailable scientific rigor that backs the methods that are used to make assessments. So you do, you do need that, and there's no escaping that, right? Because the thing is that, it, well, imagine if you had a, a market in tradable instruments that reflected or claimed to reflect environmental condition, and then somebody pops up and says, well, you know, and is able to demonstrate that the science underlying the measurement is just rubbish, right? Then the whole yeah. market collapses. So the science has to be unassailable. But at the same time, measurement on the ground has to be feasible and not prohibitively expensive, right? So those are the two goals. Absolutely. No, I love, I love that perspective. Maybe one challenge I think there is, is that view of sort of generally considered scientific. And we saw this play out in Australia specifically with the sale of carbon credits to Microsoft through the Regen Network. And, you know, on, on the one hand, I guess the view of that was there wasn't enough scientific rigor in the methodology used to calculate the levels of soil carbon, but on the other hand, that criticism effectively was done in the open, in public, on publicly available data. Yeah. I think our view on that would be that's a market functioning. No, no, I and- agree. I agree. And uh, so let me clarify something I said a little, a little moment ago. Now, that particular transaction was what's what business people would call an over-the-counter transaction. Yeah. So there was a, a well-informed buyer on one side of the transaction, the buyer, Microsoft knew what they were buying. I don't think anybody was saying they didn't. And then on the other side of the transaction, you have obviously a willing seller. Well, I, I don't see any problem in that in that transaction at all. The, the risk arises for the buyer, and I'm not saying this is the case in that transaction, but of course, in general, the risk arises for the buyer if the buyer then wants to sell that into a secondary market at some stage. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or in particular, listed on an exchange at some stage in the future. And the risk is that the secondary buyer is not as certain about the value as the, as the initial buyer was, or that when an attempt is made to list it on an exchange, the exchange listing rules prevent it. The exchange listing rules just say, well, hang on a second, that's not sufficiently, doesn't have sufficient integrity for us to list it so so that's that's the risk but you know as far as that transaction itself is concerned i i don't see any reason to be critical of that particular transaction but I, i do think going going forward and particularly looking forward to the development of exchange exchange traded products we are going to have to all of us are going to have to ensure that the methodologies the methods that are used in uh making assessments about environmental condition and carbon as well, by the way, that, that those methods have uh, unassailable scientific rigor. Yeah, you, you touched on that before, and again, we're we're kind of fascinated by these developments as it relates to you know retaining the power of technological advancement. I mean, I think the journey of the clean energy regulator recently around soil carbon methods is you know seems like it has a lot of pretty good lessons in it about you know the ways in which if you take a purely science-led approach, you might tend to be a bit more prescriptive and and sort of uh, process-based rather than 
trying hard to be outcome-based and allowing technology to do its job, which is exactly what you said, lower, yeah, lower right. the cost of doing right. things at high accuracy. Exactly, exactly. I think that's the holy grail for all of us, really, is to be able to secure sufficient comfort around scientific integrity, but at, at uh, acceptably low cost. But what we also see, and I think this is technologically driven, I guess the concept, we call the concept, the factory has no roof. And, and it's something, in a way, it's quite unique to agriculture because yeah, especially today with 30 centimetre resolution satellites, everything you do can easily be observed. And so it's not just that the product gets to market with the right attribution, but that at every stage along the way, there will be you know, people forming opinions about how well you're doing what you're doing. It's actually, you know, it's quite confronting, isn't it? Yes, yes. Because I, we have a small dairy farm. Well, it used to be a dairy farm. It's no longer a dairy farm ourselves. And, and as I'm walking across the paddocks, I often reflect on that, you know. Uh, somebody's watching this. Or if they're not, they could be. They could be watching and at quite low expense too, by the way. And they're able to observe pretty much in real time the way in which we are managing this property. Yeah, um, and that is, you know, that's quite something to, something to ponder. You know, you can feel, you can feel threatened by that, or not, but it's just a fact of life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the, but, but there's a great opportunity that comes with it. I think that's 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 what we would want people to focus their attention on, exactly. which is, you know, we're proud of the way this land is managed. Exactly. And, you know, we welcome exactly. the oversight. We are open. We are transparent. Take a look at this magnificent farm that I've got and the way that it, I'm managing it and look at its improvement over time. And, and, you know, look, the fact is you don't have to have a look at satellite imagery to get a sense of how people are managing their farms. Um, yeah. Every day as I drive along a country road, I certainly pay attention to what the neighbouring farmers are doing. I, you know, yeah. I look at what they're doing. They're all very well aware of what's happening in our place. I know that. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's funny, right? Like it's, it's definitely a thing to look over the, over the neighbor's fence, but it feels a very different thing to have someone looking over your shoulder uh, yeah. from, from high that's up. That's right. But, you know, the thing is, as you said, see it as an opportunity, right? Yeah. Um, as yeah. an opportunity to demonstrate to the world what a wonderful job you're doing. Yeah, and, and, and that's actually uh, like to kind of tap into your economist brain here for, for a minute too, because I think in that frame where, where this is a global problem and, and really Australia, you know, I think very credibly can claim to be a world leader in, yeah, yeah, in yeah. climate adaptive agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. we can become a bigger producer and we have an aspiration to become a larger producer of actual output, you know, farm yeah. output, sure. but we could also participate in what is estimated to be a multi-hundred billion dollar market for products and services around, you know, climate adaptive agriculture. One of the things that um, struck me when I was back in, when was this, 2012, I suppose it was, leading the development of the white paper on Australia in the Asian century, uh, which is something I did for uh, the Gillard government, travelling through Asia, talking to very, very senior people and just getting a sense of the burgeoning middle class, in particular China and India, and the enormous demand for agricultural produce 
that was going to come out of those two countries over the next several decades. And we're only, we're still really only at the beginning of it. If Australia only targeted the top 1% of the middle-class consumers in those two countries, the market for Australian produce would be absolutely enormous, absolutely enormous, right? And so the question is, what does it take to be successful in that top 1% of the burgeoning middle-class consumer market in, say, China and India and other countries in the region? And what it takes is an absolute commitment to quality. Climate adaptive, climate friendly, environmentally sustainable, and so on. That, those, those things are obviously the key today. And if we manage to secure a strong position in those markets today, then decades to come, the commercial returns for Australian farmers should be very, very attractive. And, and what about, um, so sort of from a policy settings point of view, Australia hasn't really thought of itself as an exporter of, of knowledge economy related products, and, and certainly not as far as agriculture is concerned. <laughs> it's funny, you know, we tend to export the businesses that are created. Yeah. <laughs> Sell them off to, uh, to larger commercial concerns in other places. We haven't, we haven't been very good at learning how to develop the businesses here. It's not like it's not that we've uh, we're incapable of coming up with the ideas. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, I, I would like to challenge you on that actually a little bit because right. I think I think it's a I think it's a process in fact, and I think whilst it it's definitely true that we don't hold on to companies as long as we might. Sometimes an industry needs a kind of baseline of people who have built and exited businesses to kind of get enough mm-hmm. momentum in it to then, if you look at just straight tech. Now, you know, we've reached escape velocity, right? So yeah, we, yeah. we now can retain globally significant tech companies in Australia and they can grow and, you know, take on the world without having to you no, know, sell true. to a larger. No, that's true. That's true. I do stand corrected on that one. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, and we have to prove ourselves capable of doing that in other sectors as well. And, and, and I mean, we certainly have great passion for that happening in, you know, the agri-tech sector, if that's what yeah. we might call it. I'm interested also in in sort of backtracking a little onto the this concept of you know the incentives of environmental measurement and the degree to which that, that overlaps or doesn't overlap. Perhaps as the case has been, you know, federal government policy in particular, it feels that there is a significant shift taking place right now as it regards to agriculture's role in a, in a kind of broader emissions sort of set of standards and as we progress toward uh, Glasgow, you know, the role of regenerative and other, you know, systems that focus on, you know, those dual purposes for agriculture seem to be very much in the frame as far as government policy is concerned. Yeah, very much so. It is a really interesting time. So both the Federal Agriculture Minister and also the Federal Energy Minister or, or other Minister for Climate and Energy demonstrated that they are really, really interested in this space. And by the way, they've demonstrated that they're interested not only in carbon, but beyond carbon. So they're interested in, well, let's call it environmental condition of of the farm. My very real sense is that people right across the country have got their eyes and ears open on this one and on both these things and see 
a real opportunity right now to, to make a very big difference. And that, that's true of farmers, but it's also true of intermediaries, right? Yeah. Including the carbon aggregators that people are familiar with. They're very, very wide awake uh, to what is happening. I think the next um, year or so could see an absolute explosion in the development of financial instruments that reward farmers for soil carbon, for other forms of terrestrial carbon, also for enhancement of environmental condition. Yeah, su- super exciting. An economic kind of technical question in that setting, it seems like, and, and you referred specifically to the fact that, you know, many farmers are already doing much of this. And it seems like the concept of additionality whilst technically justifiable is potentially a significant disincentive for participation in those yeah, markets. Yeah, we have to, I think, look, yeah, I know where you're going with that question and I think we have to be really, really careful not to be so pedantic about additionality as to completely undermine the outcomes that we're seeking. And that's the real risk. So yeah. uh, we do need a pragmatic approach and, uh, yeah, it just... Just do not lose sight of the outcomes that we're after. It, it, it feels a little bit like that at the moment, that, that we've allowed, you know, great to become the enemy of good and there yeah. are far fewer people participating than might otherwise based on, yeah, overly yeah. technical interpretation. Yeah, we can't allow that to happen. So we see on, on one hand, you know, an increasing amount of pressure to ensure that the emissions profile, if we just stuck to emissions, because I suppose that's the frame really for heading to to, to Glasgow, the emissions profile of agriculture, enteric emissions in particular, because we are a livestock heavy system. So there's one set of initiatives that that look to make that profile as favourable as possible. But the second, which is, you know, a net provider of climate solutions, you know, to the rest of the economy that may have a higher cost to decarbonise. How do you how should we view those? How should we balance the two? And is there a risk in some ways of over-focusing on agricultural emissions when you know, decarbonisation of energy also needs a lot of work? It's true that the decarbonisation of energy needs a lot of work, but by the way, there's a hell of a lot happening. But, but I really think that this has to be, maybe it's not unambiguously good news for the agricultural sector, but it's overwhelmingly good news for the agriculture sector yeah. is that the rest of the economy, or at least those parts of the economy that are, find, that are finding, or those businesses that find it very difficult to achieve net zero within their own operations, it's a completely new opportunity for agriculture. Yeah. You know, that agricultural enterprises could have a commercial relationship with other businesses that have absolutely nothing to do with agriculture, nothing at all to do with agriculture. And the relationship is developed because of uh, a common interest in emissions reduction. And the agricultural provider, the farmer, essentially being the seller of of a product, an intangible product, of course, but a product to a business that never had any connection with agriculture. And by the way, and and it's not just the potential to sell these intangible products to other Australian businesses. There's a potential to sell them globally. Yeah, notwithstanding wherever the Paris sort of discussion ends up as far as as export is concerned. So I love that idea, that diversification of income, if if you might call it that, by by having financial relationship with with non-supply chain aligned participants. 
But on the other hand, it also seems, so you touched on briefly the idea of sustainability linked loans and other things that are much more within the system. Absolutely. Love to hear your comment on kind of the relative degrees, you know, so whether that's, uh, you know, grid pricing improvements that the processor might give me because I can deliver, you know, zero carbon beef or the favorable financial conditions that might be afforded to me by a lender, because again, I can demonstrate I'm lower risk. So when I was when I was with the National Australia Bank, we were doing quite quite a lot of work, and I know the work is continuing on natural capital. The 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 motivator for that work on natural capital was was actually to assist credit decision making. That is, to develop metrics that could be used as inputs into the pricing of loans, and and that's what you're talking about here. So. You know, I, on several occasions, visited various parts of Australia agricultural communities with NAB agri-bankers. Again, you could drive down a road, they'd tell, they were capable of telling you who owned every property, who they banked with, and whether they were a good credit risk or a bad credit risk. But they were also, so there was a lot of anecdotal information that already informs credit decision-making in the agri-sector. And every farmer would be aware of that. But much better than anecdotal information is hard data. And, yeah. um, and that's what the natural capital work was all about, was yeah. developing metrics that could feed directly into credit decision-making. So, and that means into the question of whether a relationship should exist or not. Yep. Like even exist between a farm and a bank? Would anybody bank that farmer? That kind yep. of question. But then also to uh, the pricing of the loan. You know, do we have such confidence in the operations of this particular farmer that we take some basis points, maybe quite a few basis points, off the mortgage interest rate, or, or the other direction? If or the other direction, indeed, or the other direction. I mean, I. I do remember on one trip in particular, sitting uh, in a car with one of NAB's agribankers and he pointing to a succession of farms and saying, we would never touch those farms. Yeah. And, and it, it seems like also there's another set of decisions that get made, which is consumers expressing preference yeah. for, you know, at least how their perception of how you know decisions made all the way back at the farm kind of impact the products that they're buying. And, and maybe that brings us all the way back to the, the start of the conversation where if as a consumer of products, I can understand you know, the practices that, that might in fact encourage logging of trees that, that should never have been cut down, that we can create incentives of, of that kind as well. Do you, do you see there being a powerful kind of message to connect farming directly consumers with this sort of information as well? Yeah, I do. It also goes to the conversation we were having about, about satellite imagery, right? It's because what's at issue here is transparency and consumers expressing increasing interest in knowing full backstory for the products that they're consuming. And, and I guess the way this all comes together is that there's a big opportunity for Australia's farmers right now to embrace methodologies that scientifically credible methodologies that allow them to be fully transparent and in a way that has absolute integrity. And, and I think that's, the, that's really what consumers are seeking. And that's it for another episode of AgTech So What? 
Thank you to Ken Henry for coming on the podcast and to Matthew for doing such a great job with the interview. As usual, we'll post the links to the resources mentioned in this episode on our website, www.agtechsowhat.com. And you can always follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. We love to hear your feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please tell a friend about the show. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.